Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. The Arthurian legends are named for one man, but the tales associated with the legend involve an extensive cast. Merlin, Nimue, Guinevere, Lancelot, Uther, the Lady of the Lake, Igraine, and many more. The women within the Arthurian legends have often been sidelined in favour of their more masculine counterparts, but they offer a far more interesting point of view, especially given their invariable connection with magic. The dichotomy of being so undervalued while also such famous characters in literature means they are the perfect focus for modern-day writers wishing to bring a new flavour to the Arthurian legends. Today we welcome back to the podcast Juliet McKenna, who hardly needs any introduction. She will be talking to us about her new book, The Cleaving, which tells Arthur's tale from the point of view of Nimue, but as you've never seen her before. Juliet, thank you so much for joining us. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work to date. Hello, I am a British fantasy author. I live in the Cotswolds in the United Kingdom, and I have learned, loved history and myth and other worlds, worlds since I first learned to read. I started out writing with epic fantasy. My first novel was published in 1999. That was The Thief's Gamble. And that began a series, a sequence of 15 epic fantasy novels with an underlying chronology, but they were divided into four different series. And one of the things that I really enjoyed writing those was exploring classic epic fantasy themes, but from new perspectives, finding new angles, finding new ways to look at them. Since 2018, I've been writing a contemporary fantasy series, and these are books based on British folklore and myth. And with them, again, I've been looking at the urban fantasy template, but from a different perspective, primarily because these stories almost all take place in the countryside, rather than a female human protagonist surrounded by male supernatural creatures. My hero is a chap, and the supernatural creatures are predominantly female, which actually is the classic pattern of traditional English folklore. It's the woodcutter's three son, a third son who goes off on the adventure and meets the witch who might eat him or do something else or be, in fact, useful, a fairy godmother in the woods. And then I had a go at Arthurian legend with the cleaving. And again, what I've a conversation about why I had never written an Arthurian retelling before, focused my thoughts on new perspectives I could offer to that myth cycle. So that is what I have been doing lately and the next book I have published. Is it one of those, like, we were sitting in the pub and we had this chat about Arthur and I went, oh yeah, I could do that because they're the best kind of books. (laughs) It wasn't in the pub, but yes, essentially. I had an email from Simon Spanton at Angry Robot saying, oh, have you ever thought about doing an Arthurian retelling, Jules? And I said, no. And he said, why not? And I said, well, so many problems with the myth cycle, toxic masculinity, rape culture, overwhelming patriarchy. And he went, Ooh, good. Uh, I said, excuse me? 
well, you know, do you think there's, isn't it time that we actually had somebody take on the myth cycle from that point of view, from a female-centred, a feminist uh, perspective? Possibly. So I went away and thought about it. And actually, the more I thought about it, the more interesting the idea became. And I spoke to my agent and I said, Max, you know, what do you reckon? And he said, yeah, I think you should give it a go. So I put some ideas together and sent them to Simon. And he was keen, which was uh, extremely pleasing because by that stage, I really wanted to write this book. And uh, so I got to work. Excellent. Well, you know, I was obviously really excited to see that you had an Arthurian retelling coming out, or at least, you know, the word retelling is a bit of a nebulous thing because Arthur being, well, the Arthurian tales being what they are. When I first saw this, I kind of got me thinking about the idea of originality and about how many versions or iterations of the, the myths that we've already seen going back for a thousand years or more. Because Geoffrey of Monmouth his retelling dominated the, I suppose, the Arthurian sphere for such a long time. What's your take on the whole idea of originality when it comes to Arthurian myth? Is it something that can change with society? Is it is it the same kind of... Because we, we see this a lot. You know, obviously, retellings are hugely popular at the moment. We're seeing an awful lot of Greek mythology retellings, for example. Is it time for... You know, is is every uh, age appropriate to, to for an Arthurian retelling, basically? Will this story ever get old? I think Arthur's a very interesting myth cycle because it is very useful as a touchstone. People have a general vague familiarity with Arthur and Merlin and the sword in the stone, even if they've not never read any of the source material, in the same way that people have a general idea of the plot of Star Wars, even if they've never actually seen the movie. And one of the interesting things about these sort of archetypal myth cycles, the ones that are sort of common property, if you will, is the different uses that are made of them over the decades, or in the case of Arthur, over the centuries. Geoffrey of Monmouth was using the myth cycle to validate and reinforce the then current political system with basically the sheen of antiquity and validation with a long lineage and basically, you know, to reinforce uh, the acceptability of the current power structure. And actually, he was the, might have been the first to do that, but he certainly wasn't the last. People tend to forget that Henry VIII's elder brother, who died, which is why we ended up with Henry VIII on the throne, was called Arthur. Now, that's a very interesting choice of name for the son of Henry VII, who basically usurped the throne. Again, it's giving the spurious gloss of, you know, it's the halo effect, if you like, that people want to get from Arthur. You look at the way the Victorians portrayed the Arthurian cycle and what that said about what the vision of society that the Victorians wanted people to accept which was again a very benign and paternalistic you know pretty girls in long long frocks with veils and sitting in mirrors you know weaving their webs lady of the shallot all that kind of stuff so it's very interesting to see the uses that people make of these story cycles because quite often that will tell us more about society necessarily than the official history. 
It'll tell us more about what they were thinking and what they wanted people to think. And I think that's one of the reasons that people keep retelling these stories, because it's a template that we can use to reflect on our own situation, our own society. And that was one of the things, the more I thought about it, the more potential I saw in doing a retelling from a female-centred perspective. I kind of feel like you could write a whole essay on how, like you say, society has influenced the Arthurian tales over the over the years. And just as thinking about that, I wanted to throw a question out to everyone and ask, what is your favourite retelling of, of the Arthurian legends? Because I know that for me, it's always going to be the Sam Neill one, even though it's probably really cringeworthy now. But when I was growing up, I just loved that. And it had sufficiently strong characters in it female characters that I quite liked it to compare to some of the other ones that you get but I mean what about Lucy Megan and obviously Juliet what what are your favorite ones <laughs> believe it or not it's Monty Python and the Holy Grail oh no I haven't thought <laughs> of that is it really an Arthurian legend though I mean I know it's got Arthur in it but really <laughs> yeah because I I mean Terry Jones who was instrumental in writing the script was a medieval scholar and there's a lot in that about the ways in which people use and abuse history. And I find that, and it's fun, it's funny. I mean, yeah, it's probably a bit dated. I haven't watched it for a long time. But one of the things that can get a bit tedious with some Arthurian retellings is they get a bit po-faced and serious. I thoroughly enjoyed Merlin, BBC's version on the telly. Uh, really enjoyed that. I thought that did, that was great fun and did some interesting things with the underlying elements of the story. So I'm throwing out a love for Merlin as well. I was just thinking I've not I've not like uh, read any of the Bradley or the Stuart books, uh, which is weird for me. But I haven't I haven't actually read an awful lot of Merlin literature. But I have watched Merlin, and it's a funny story because when it first came out. And I saw what it was about. And they said, oh, Merlin is the same age as Arthur. And I was like, I said to my sister, oh, God, that sounds shit. Ha, can't believe they're doing that. You know, like in a a weird purist response. Anyway, I watched it and I retracted everything immediately because the bromance totally won me over. Yeah, I mean, it was known in this household as Camelot to the high school years. Oh, I like that. (laughs) Okay, well, this is where I I have to say that I felt very seen by Juliet's earlier comments about, you know, the people who are familiar with Merlin or Sword in the Stone but don't really know anything about the source material, and I have to put my hand up there sheepishly and say, that's me. Yes, my exposure to Arthurian legend was mostly Disney's Sword in the Stone, uh, and, you know, obviously one of the greatest jokes ever being the owl who goes, what, what, hoo-hoo? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I'm sure that everything I know is very accurate to the source material. Ah, but you say accurate, and this is the, the old thing I was getting at earlier. What is accuracy at the end of the day? Because it is... I'm saying, is it Geoffrey of Monmouth? Is it Mallory? Um, is it any one of the incarnations that we've seen in the last few centuries? I mean, everyone has an idea. I suppose there is something to the idea of accuracy. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had that knee-jerk reaction of, oh, Merlin can't be the same age as Arthur, for example. 
I don't think there is a definitive version. I mean, even if you start reading the medieval sort of romance sources, the Chrétien de Troyes or Troyes, I don't know how to pronounce these things. I only ever see them written down. There are so many different variations and so many different sources have been drawn into the myth cycle and amalgamated. If you start looking at the source material for Merlin, you go off in massive tangents about Welsh myth. You get different versions of different stories that are mutually self-contradictory. I don't think you can have a definitive version. And if it comes to, you know, was there a historical author? Various writers, various historians have tried to unpack that. They've come up with some very interesting theories and some very interesting observations. But no one's going to ever be able to pin that down. And I think that's actually quite liberating. One of the things about writing with this sort of material is it is completely different to writing within... Um, an established intellectual property uh, scenario like uh, Star Trek, because uh, then you've got a wealth of canon material, all of this, and a huge number of people have contributed to it. But there are quite defined strictures with with what you can and cannot do with individual characters, what you can and cannot do with individual plot lines. You can't contradict something that's gone before. With the Arthurian myth, basically, there is so much fluidity. There is so much variation that you can look at the different versions and pick what you want to suit the purposes of the story you want to tell and the underlying themes you want to explore. Thinking about that, I mean, we've had Monty Python, we've had Disney Sword in the Stone, and we've had two different versions of Merlin. There is a wide variety of stuff out there, and that's just the TV and movie stuff. There are masses of books as well. Um, I mean, the Bernard Cornwell books, I, I just love those ones. But is there sort of core elements in the tale which you have to include for it to be considered an Arthurian tale? I mean, do you have to have Arthur? Do you have to have Merlin? It's, you know, do you have to have Excalibur? What are the core elements, do you think? Or is it sort of fluid and you can pick and choose? I think you have to have the recognisable high spots, if you like. You're going to need Arthur. You're going to need a Camelot. You're going to need an Excalibur. You're going to need an antagonist and there are various ones that you can choose but the infinite flexibility of what you can do with that the 2021 book called Blackheart Knights uh, came out from Joe Fletcher Books the author is Laura Eve L-A-U-R-E Eve surname and imagine Camelot but in Gotham a city where Arthurian knights are celebrities of the day, riding motorbikes instead of horses, competing in televised fights for fame and money. And I got sent this as uh, to read and review, and I thought, <laughs> you're kidding me. And I read it, and it works superbly well. And it does some really interesting things with, again, reflecting on the myths that we know, the myths we think we know, but also on... The influence the Arthurian cycle has had on epic fantasy. And that's one of the other reasons that I wanted to explore this. And again, that brings us back to the Victorians, because a lot of classic Victorian popular literature has still fed into science fiction and fantasy, particularly fantasy, that we're writing today. And we have you know, The Chosen One, The Magic Sword, The Wise Mentor, women who might or might not be deceitful or disloyal. And 
as epic fantasy writers, I think we need to interrogate some of those themes, some of those ideas rather more closely than we necessarily do, because a lot of them do not stand the test of time. And particularly if you look at the Victorian motives for introducing those themes, those definitely don't pass the sniff test these days. We've been talking about how versions are adapted to and influenced by society. So let's think about the cleaving in particular. And because at the beginning of your novel, society's view of women is both oppressive and yet inherently contradictory. Women are to be obedient and useful to their husbands, but they also have to be silent and unremarkable. On the one hand, they're used as noble reasons for war, such as Uther riding to save Igraine. But on the other hand, men are constantly reminding all these women that they're worthless. So I was interested, is this something that you gleaned from history? Was it something you found in the legends itself? Was it a bit of both? Or, given our previous conversation, is it something that you feel needs addressing in today's society? Uh, Yes to all of the above. (laughs) Um, I think one of the things that I wanted to do was highlight the inherent contradictions in these views of women. And again, this goes back through versions of history that we are told, bearing in mind we are frequently told these versions of history by men, but also the way that a lot of these myths are portrayed in film, TV and books, that women are supposed to be demure and silent and all the rest of it. Ah, but they're secretly very powerful. You know, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world and all the rest of it. Yeah, the power behind the throne. But more than that, what I actually wanted to look at specifically was the inherent contradictions here set up a massive disconnect between what women are supposed to be and actually what women really are. And that does nobody any favours whatsoever. Trying to create uh, an idealistic view of what a woman woman is and what a woman does, and again, going back to the Victorians, uh, he forgot alone, she forgot in him, all of these ideals, they rarely survive contact with reality. And this, again, I think is something that we need to look at in the context of the current debates that are going on in society about not just gender roles, but expectations of, you know, what is a real man? What is a real woman? Because there's an awful lot of this nonsense out there and it's come back, which I find quite baffling because you know, I grew up in the 70s and, you know, little girls wore brown dungarees and played with the same multicoloured Lego as their brothers. These days, little girls are supposed to be in pink and little boys are supposed to be in blue and little girls get pink Lego. I don't know where that, why that has come back and I don't like it as an idea. And the thing is, it's not only these unrealistic expectations, these boxes that are set up that people are supposed to try and force themselves into. They're not only bad for women, they are bad for men as well. So I wanted to just foreground that um, you know, a mythic ideal actually isn't going to survive contact with reality. So... How about we don't? I, I love your point about the the pink Lego. I, I don't understand that. I was playing with uh, some friends' kids recently and the boy had dinosaur Lego and the girl had flower Lego. And, like, mm. I like flowers, but I also like dinosaurs. And I feel like a four-year-old girl should be able to choose that she also likes dinosaurs and flowers, and that's fine. 
And to a certain extent, you wonder how much of this is unintended consequences of corporate greed, because this sort of genderization of toys started to come through, um, fortunately, a bit after my kids were small. But I mean, I saw an analysis of it and uh, somebody from the toy industry was saying very simply, yeah, well, it's easy. Uh, yeah, why are you doing this? Well, because we can sell twice as much stuff. If we sell a white football for boys and girls to play with, we've sold one football. If we sell a red football for boys and a pink football for girls, we've sold two footballs. You can't fault his logic, but at the same time, yeah. like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Talk about unintended consequences. Yes, it's quite depressing. All right, so in history and, you know, in historical fantasy especially, a lot of powerful women are portrayed as healers who understand potions and herbalism. Why do you think writers so often pair women with plants and the power of the land? In stories, does such power raise them above the male characters or only put them on an equal footing? I think it uh, goes back to the fact that women are far more tied to hearth, home, family, nurturing, picking up the pieces when the glorious heroic battle has swept to and fro and all the men are dead, the women are the ones who are left picking up the pieces and staunching the wounds and stopping everybody dying of hunger, disease or infection. But I don't think people have necessarily thought that one through to that extent. But I think it's because the role of women historically has been to, I mean, it's hugely simplistic to talk about, you know, hunter gatherers, you know, men go off and hunt mammoths and women walk around looking for the next ripe berry. But the fact remains that women are more closely tied to environments. If you, with all the debate that's going on about economic migrants and all the rest of it, the vast majority of people's, the first waves of people looking to escape a dreadful economic or violent situation will be the young men because they are mobile. They can go places in this, in ways that a woman who has got small children and old relatives to look after simply cannot. And so I think the, the, the seeing women as nurturers, as healers, as the people who basically make the soup and brew the potions is actually an extension of that. I'd never thought about that mobility point as well. I mean, it's something that I've when you say it, I'm like, well, yeah, obviously, when we talk about the hero's quest and things, why is it never the women going off? But yeah, I hadn't thought about it, that just physically the ability to move from place to place, because as you say, you have older, older family members that naturally fall to the woman and you have younger kids. I hadn't thought about that. I'm going to have to look out now for books that prove that this isn't the case or have women at home still having adventures. I don't, is that even possible? I don't know. It's one of the things that I first started recognising when I was doing the reading for the Chronicles of the Lescari Revolution, which is my third series. Um, there's a really good book on the history of the Balkans by Misha, Misha Glenny, who was a journalist, probably still is a journalist. And it was looking, because fractured societies interest me, and why grudges get handed down through generations for a start, but also diasporas. If you start looking at diasporas, they they are very. They, it is a very interesting phenomenon on who leaves, why they leave, and in the case of the Lescari Revolution series, one of the things I was looking at in those books. This is going off for something of a tangent, is the extent to which remittance money getting sent home 
actually can perpetuate a bad situation. But that is not directly relevant to anything in the cleaving. <laughs> well, that's the thing about good books, isn't it? They might have a narrow focus, but they bring out a discussion of so many varied issues. Mm. Yes, um, uh, one of the things, I, the more I got into writing this book, yeah, the more potential I saw in it, which was good because if you're not enjoying writing it, there's no point in doing it. I feel like we should, uh, you know, on that note, talk about some of your characters. For example, Nimue, who has been identified as the Lady of the Lake in some iterations of the Arthurian legend. But you have taken her very far away from that quite quite passive role. I mean, she most people would know her as simply the person who gives Arthur Excalibur that it arrives from the lake and that actually she has very little agency and also very little effect outside that role but she is in the cleaving a central narrator so we just wanted to ask you about kind of how you took that character and thought that you know maybe there was some more development to be had there well one of the interesting things if you read enough of the sort of original medieval versions of these myths is Nimue in quite a few of them is completely separate from the lady of the lake who might be called Viviane but equally in other ones, Viviane is completely separate from the Lady of the Lake. There are a lot more female characters in some of the earlier retellings. And these all get amalgamated into one female character in the later retellings. And that irritated me. I felt, you know, let's let's broaden this cast out because there used to be a lot more women in this this these myth cycles. Let's let's get back to that. The very interesting thing about Nimue is she plays a central role in Merlin's story. And that I definitely wanted to use. So that sets her up as, as it were, the antithesis to Merlin. And the uses that they different people make of magic. So in the story that I wanted to tell, she became a very useful character to develop and rewrite in my own uh, way to serve that particular purpose within the overall structure of the plot. And in doing so, I actually made her powerful and influential rather than the passive person who simply strolls onto stage to do a bit of plot only when it's ever relevant to the male-centred narrative and strolls off again, presumably to sit in a cupboard until she's needed. Um, which is very much what happens to most of the women in the Arthurian retellings and does them no favours at all because it sets up an awful lot of the contradictions. A lot of the women's narrative arcs simply make no sense because they're so fractured and scattered. You need an underlying rationale to make sense of what Morgana does, what Guinevere does. And... One of the ways that I did that was I put together, I started looking at the timeline. Because if you start thinking about what these female characters do when they're not strolling on stage to do something to advance the plot for the boys, you see that they overlap. They overlap in time and they overlap in places. And one of the interesting things about women, we talk, we talk to each other. Women habitually cooperate uh, one of the great uh, myths of the square-jawed hero saving society after the apocalypse 
is it's always the solitary square jawed hero saving society. In reality, if you look at real world catastrophic disasters, it is far more frequent that the women who haven't been able to leave the small children and the aged relatives because they have got to stay where their responsibilities are. It's actually the women cooperating who start the process of recovery. And uh, again, I started to think, well, how would these women talk to each other? How would these women support each other? And how would their stories come to make sense? I must admit, going back a step, where you were talking about all the different women, Vivienne and Nimue and the Lady of the Lake, and how they kind of are interchangeable almost. I have to admit, I did a little internal dance when I read the book, and I'm like, they're all there, they're all different people, and they've all got different roles. It was so refreshing, because like you say, they do kind of get together. When you said about women cooperate, I loved how, as well as it being in the main characters, you interwove it into the whole of society, like right at the beginning where they're all gathered for Uther's big proclamation and Egraine sends, I think she sends Nimue to go and speak to one of the other queens of another country going, just go and tell her this and then she'll tell so-and-so and whatever. And I just love the idea that there was, you know, a time in history when, yeah, the kings did all the big stuff and had all their names everywhere, but the women were quietly in the background, just, you know, passing messages and influencing their husbands in this little way and that little way. That was really lovely. I think one of the great things we've got going on at the moment is history is no longer being seen from the solely male perspective. History is no longer about the great deeds of great white men in the classic Victorian mould. You can tell that I've got a few issues with Victorian worldview, can't you? Yeah, we've got things like Janina Ramirez's uh, book, Femina, which I have not yet read, but I uh, intend to. Looking at society and history from a female perspective, I mean, it started when I was an undergraduate. It's been going on for 40 years. And we are now starting to see that same shift in perspective applied to the great classic narratives, the great classic myth cycles. As you said earlier, we've got uh, retellings of Greek myth. We've got looking at the Trojan War from the point of view of the women. Though, to be fair, that's, uh, you know, Aeschylus did do it first. And so did Euripides, I think. So this this shift in perspective has been happening in history, I say, for the past 40 years. Now we're starting to see it in the great classic narratives. And I think it's a really interesting development. So my teenage years were spent researching Grail Law, and I can tell you all about Grail Law. I'm fabulous at that. But that element of Arthurian legend with Guinevere and Lancelot and everyone, I was always a bit sort of hazy on. And I will admit that I got the majority of my knowledge from the excellent Sam Neill production of Merlin, in that Merlin and Nimue were sort of cast as star-crossed lovers. And obviously in your book, that's not quite how it is. So you said earlier about Nimue being crucial to Arthur's story in the original writing. So I wondered if you could tell us what Nimue and Merlin were like in the original ones, and how you've changed that as much as you're able to do us without giving us any spoilers for the current book. Yeah, okay, massive spoilers. As was said earlier, in many ways, Nimue is a very passive character in a lot of the uh, myths. But she is cast in this sort of femme fatale mode, insofar as she does play a part in Merlin's story. And I wanted to get away from that. When you're looking at Nimue, one of the things that I wanted to explore was the nature of power and what constitutes power. Because frequently the idea is that power must be action. It must be doing things. 
Uh, whereas one of Nimue's powers in this retelling is she's an observer. And the, you know, the act of observing does change what is going on. But also she becomes somebody who understands what is going on because she is, you know, she is not driving the action. She's observing the action and she is seeing, looking ahead to what the consequences of those actions are going to be further down the line. And that is one of the things I think that drives her certainly in this retelling. So in that in that sense, she is a version of the, the Nimue from the classic stories in that she interacts with Merlin. But her interaction in my version, the end is the same, but the reasons are very different. And I think that's probably as much as I can say without spoilers. That, I feel, is a very accurate general summary that gives a good flavour of the novel without giving away the spoilers. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I'm actually glad that you strayed into the the territory of female power um, because it made me want to talk about another character um, who everyone is very familiar with, particularly if they've watched the recent Merlin TV show, which is uh, Morgana or Morgan, often known as Morgan Le Fay. And... It's interesting because she was portrayed, you know, originally as a healer and that her healing arts were very much the focus of some of the early Arthurian stories. But of course, Mallory notably turned her into a much more sinister femme fatale, as you've already mentioned that that word and obviously a lot of women are that is that is a major female trope the femme fatale but you know he turned her into Arthur's enemy so it made me think about you know whether there is this fear there a fear present of uncontrolled female power you know in the in the early tales and whether that fear could be a driving force behind our desire today to want to revisit these stories and want to say, okay, if there was a fear there, why was it there? Um, and what can these women tell us today that male authors were too frightened to approach? I don't see it so much as dealing with fears of female power, though there, you know, that is a thread certainly through a fair few of these retellings. I would go first to the old tiresome dichotomy of Madonna or whore, that women must either be pure virtuous and all the rest of it, or they're bad. And that's one of the things that I think, on the basis of not being an Arthurian scholar, but just having read the books, I think that's one of the things that drove the recasting of Morgana. Because in the books she you know, she doesn't do what um, the, the books Mallory in particular she doesn't do what is expected of her she tries to have agency she tries to make her own decisions and that is clearly bad and a bad woman must be you know again Madonna figure the, the good the dutiful the biddable wife which is Guinevere and then the you have the the bad girl and Morgana just got cast as the bad girl and one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was to look at reasons, again, to give Morgana a coherent backstory that made sense. If she's going to do these things which are counter to Arthur's wishes that are going to cause trouble for Arthur, she's got to have a good reason for doing these things. And actually, again, if you start looking at 
her life story, you can start to build a much more coherent explanation for the way that she behaves as she does. Um, I feel it would be remiss of me not to give a shout out to Sophie Keach's um, Morgan is my name because I just read that and I thought it was I really enjoyed it. And that's uh, it's it's a book that's already been released on audiobook, but I hear it's coming out in paperback or hardback this uh, summer. Um, So anyone who wants to discover more about Morgan or Morgan Le Fay, Morgana um, as a character could um, definitely, you know, do worse than to read this book. I, I learned quite a lot. and I really, I really enjoyed Sophie's um, depiction of her as a healer and how, you know, even in her ability to heal was the seed of darkness that it's this somehow kind of heathen magic. And it certainly goes against um, what is considered Christian and good. Yeah, I I didn't touch the grail aspects of it at all because I did not want to get into that particular minefield. (laughs) Um, I did not want to get into the quasi-religious aspects of the narrative at all. Um, Yeah, and other people can do that and that's fine if they've got something interesting, useful and valid to say. I did not have anything interesting, useful or valid to say on that score. So I decided to steer well clear. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? How, um, but you know, not surprising how Arthurian legend and Christianity became so interwoven. I mean, the Arthurian legend is a powerful vehicle for delivering a religious agenda. Yes, and again, um, it's all tied up with uh, monarchy and validating a top-down feudal system. When you said earlier that women are quite often cast as the Madonna or the whore. I kind of wonder where that leaves Guinevere because she kind of starts off as one and then becomes the other. Exactly. This is what I mean about because the women are basically, they come on to do their bit of plot to influence the story for the men and go off again. You do get these wildly incoherent and inconsistent behaviours because they have not been thought through as fully rounded characters. And actually that was one of the biggest challenges for me was because, again, we have the the fixed story beats, if you like, that we know have to happen. So, yeah, that was quite a challenge. And I was reading around some of the lesser known variants of the myths. Again, some of the sort of medieval myth legends that came in and were sort of shoehorned into the main Arthurian narrative, particularly uh, Lancelot and the Knight of the Cart. And when I put that together with... Guinevere basically being seen as a, well, a pawn, you know, for her father, for her husband, for their enemies. You know, nobody is looking at her for herself. Certainly none of the men are looking at her as an individual in her own right. And then suddenly she thinks somebody is doing that. I have to say, without giving any spoilers away, that I did like the way you resolved the Guinevere and Lancelot um, subplots. That was probably one of my favourite points of the book. I thought it was handled in a way I hadn't seen before, but in a way that struck me as nicely realistic. Good. Thank you. <laughs> I don't think I can say any more about that without giving uh, <laughs> crucial know. things away. That is the problem sometimes. But yeah, I thought it was it was an interesting way to do it. But because one of the things, again, when when you start looking at the classic Camelot setup, honour, rivalry, do, daring do, 
yeah, you start to realise that actually does the boys no more favours than it does the girls. Thank you so much for joining us, Julia. I feel like we have covered so much of the Arthurian legends and yet there's still so much more to do. So if you ever do feel like writing a a grail version of it, (laughs) do come back on the show and tell us all about it. Absolutely. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.